Save big money and transform your home with new appliances now at Menards. We offer the lowest prices and the largest in-stock appliance selection ready to take home today. Check out top appliance brands, including KitchenAid, Maytag, Whirlpool, Amana, and Criterion. Upgrade your home and save big money on new appliances at Menards. Shop our entire selection of appliance options online today at Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You, too, could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18-plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. Welcome to the True Crime Never Sleeps podcast. I'm your host, Larry Lease. Today, we're looking into the bizarre collarbone bank robbery. One of the most strangest heists I've ever encountered in my research of true crime. Before we dive right into this case, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Poddex, for sponsoring this episode. Check them out today at poddex.com and use the promo code Larry21 for 10% off your first purchase. On August 28, 2003, a phone call was made during lunchtime rush to Mama Mia's Pizza, located at 5154 Peach Street. Tony Dipmo, the owner of Mama Mia's, takes an order for two large sausage, sausage and pepperoni pizzas. Tony cannot understand the customer telling him the address, so he hands the phone over to his employee, Brian Wells. Brian Wells is your average 5'3", 46-year-old, balding on top. Man, he takes down the address, 8631 Peach Street, and heads out south on Peach Street for what seems to be an ordinary delivery. Yet roughly two hours later, Brian Wells is on live TV for robbing a bank. He is handcuffed and surrounded by state troopers in the parking lot of Eyeglass World with a bomb strapped to his neck. Wells tells the police that the bomb was fastened to him by a group of black men who ordered him to rob a bank. After about 30 minutes of gently trying to communicate his plight, Wells says to the police, quote, Why is it nobody's trying to come get this thing off of me? I don't have a lot of time. It's going to go off. I'm not lying. Did you call my boss? At about 3.18 p.m., the caller starts emitting a loud and rapid beeping noise, and then the bomb detonates, and Wells falls backwards, slowly dying, while medics and police are baffled in the background. Wells is dead on the pavement. Two minutes later, the bomb squad finally arrives. As some of you may know, collar bombs have only been known to be used by Colombian drug lords when it comes to turf wars, making the use of one in Erie, Pennsylvania especially odd. Even more stranger, police found several pages of instructions telling Wells how to rob the bank and remove his explosive collar. The notes were addressed to the bomb hostage. The instructions were handwritten with illustrations. 
This case seems pretty cut and dry, but as more details arose, it appeared that Wells may not have entirely been a victim. Looking into this further, let's take a look into Wells. Wells' landlady and neighbor Linda Payne stated that Wells was an ordinary Erie, Pennsylvania resident. Linda said, quote, He liked to help people. He used to get up, get his breakfast at McDonald's or somewhere, and a newspaper, come home and hang out until it was time to go to work. He was very shy. He took the hubcaps off of his cars because they were too shiny. He was the perfect tenant. At age 46, Wells lived alone with three cats. Hey, we got your male version of the cat lady. He was a dedicated employee at Mamma Mia's Pizzeria. In the 10 years of his employment there, he had only called in late for work once. And that was due to the death of one of his cats. Admittedly, none of this aims to scream high-profile bank robber. The phone call to the pizzeria was made around 1.47 p.m. Wells agreed to take the delivery, even though it was the end of his shift. Wells would have arrived at 8631 Peach Street at about 2 p.m. During the investigation, it was found that the delivery location was not a home, but a TV transmission tower site in a wooded area off of Peach Street. It was only reachable by a dirt road. The area was swept, and they found footprints that matched Wells' footwear and the tire tracks of his Geo Metro. The area offered no clues to how he had been lured there or what exactly happened when he arrived. But one thing is clear. It's during this time that Wells was outfitted with the collar bomb. Because 20 minutes later, at roughly 2.20 p.m., Wells walked into the PNC Bank wearing the collar bomb. The bank was about two miles back up on Peach Street, and Wells was wearing a t-shirt with the word guests across the chest, and a shirt that relatives say was not his. Wells was instructed to, quote, go to the bank quietly, enter with the weapon you were given, avoid panicking the tellers or customers, use the weapon if anyone does not cooperate or attempts to leave the bank, one of the witnesses, John Seckel, said he saw Wells walk into the bank with a shotgun disguised as a cane and what appeared to be a shoebox under his shirt. The bomb was already around Wells' neck at this point. Wells gave a bank teller a white envelope and spoke in a low voice. Wells' note to the bank teller said, Gather employees with access codes to vault and work fast to fill a bag with 250k. You only have 15 minutes. He then lifted his shirt and showed the teller his bomb, which the note confirmed. At one point, the teller yelled, Audrey, the code for a robbery. One teller whispered to a customer to leave, and a group of people began to exit. The teller told Wells that there was no way to enter the vault at that time, and was only able to hand over $8,702. The witness said Wells, quote, walked right past him and didn't bat an eye. He, according to the witness statement again, he didn't appear scared or cocky. He was actually calm. He left a sealed note for the police, along with his driver's license with the teller, as he was told to do. A woman with a cell phone called 911, and three minutes later, Wells walked out of the bank, sucking on the dum-dum he took from the bank counter. Police would later find pages of instructions in Wells' car. The first note read, quote, Exit the bank. With the money, and go to the McDonald's restaurant. Get out of the car, and go to the small sign reading, drive through, open 24-hour in the flower bed. By the sign, there's a rock with a note taped to the bottom. It has your next instructions. 
At the McDonald's, Wells collected a two-page note that directed him to go up Peach Street to a wooded area several miles away. Shortly after, Wells was stopped by state troopers and handcuffed while he told them about the bomb. The troopers left him sitting on the ground, shouting for help. They called the bomb squad as soon as they visually confirmed the device around his neck. And the rest is history. The notes directing Wells said, This powerful booby trap bomb can only be removed by following our instructions. Act now, think later, or you will die. Wells was warned that he would be watched by sentries and that if anyone follows or interferes, we may leave and allow timer to detonate or call cell phone detonator. If Wells did as he was instructed, which included driving around the city to gather passwords, clues, and keys that would disarm the bomb, Wells would end up with the combination to free himself from the bomb. However, it seemed, based off the instructions, that Brian Wells never stood a chance. The plot assumed that he would be able to rob a bank of 250k and drive around in a geometra with a collar bomb without interference from the police. Cops tried completing the hunt themselves hours after Wells had died, bouncing from clue to clue until eventually one of the clue locations came up empty. It seemed that whoever was executing the plan had called it off once the police interfered. One thing to note is that the instructions contain words like we and us, making it appear that there were multiple conspirators. And now we're going to dive into some theories. The first suspect is William Rothstein. Rothstein was a 6'6". He was a 6'6 hoarder who only wore dungarees and chest pouches filled with pens and notebooks. He spoke multiple languages, was an engineer in a high school shop, or introductory, introductory mechanics teacher. Less than a month after the collar bomb incident, Rothstein called the police and told the dispatcher, At 8645 Peach Street in the garage, there is a frozen body. It's in the freezer. The, a- the address was his home, and he claimed the body was there because he was storing it as a favor for a friend. Who was the friend, you may ask? The friend in question was a woman named Marjorie Deal Armstrong. The body was 45 years old, 45-year-old James Roden, who was killed by his then-girlfriend, Marjorie, by a shotgun blast while he was sleeping in her bedroom. This occurred on August 13th, about six weeks before Roden's body was reported. Rothstein had twice been engaged to Deal Armstrong, so given their history, he agreed to get rid of Marjorie's shotgun and store the body but stated that he called police once Marjorie suggested that he put the rest of Roden's body in a freaking ice grinder. He was eventually placed in custody hours later, but agreed to testify against Marjorie for immunity. He told the police that he had been feeling incredibly guilty and at one point was considering suicide. Police found a suicide note in a desk at his home. Interestingly, the note started with, This has nothing to do with the Wells case, which... Kind of odd thing to say because from an outside perspective, it has no apparent relation. The only link between Rothstein and uh, Brian Wells seemed to be a coincidence. Rothstein's house was one of the only two houses on the vicinity of Brian Wells' last pizza delivery in the woods. Rothstein's house was a mere five-minute walk away. Additionally, the phone call that placed the order of pizzas was traced to a payphone on 8228 Peach Street at a shell garage only a half a mile away from Rothstein's home. 
Lorraine Blanchett, the manager of the convenience store at the Shell station, or at the Shell store uh, garage, stated Rothstein would often come in. He'd come in to buy newspapers and cookies. He'd sit outside in his car and have brunch. Rothstein also used to make calls from the payphone. Police searched his home and found power tools, welders, and piles of old machinery. An old NPR article stated that Rothstein, the collar was made up of a triple-banded metal collar with four keyholes and a three-digit combination lock, and an iron box containing two six-inch pipe bombs loaded with double-base smokeless powder. The hinged collar locked around Wells' neck like a giant handcuff. Investigators were able to tell that the device had been made using professional tools. In 2007, a Pennsylvania grand jury agreed that Rothstein had dumped over 1,000 pounds of evidence at a local landfill. But even if Rothstein made the bomb, he didn't quite fit the profile of the mastermind of such a cruel operation as this. The second suspect, as you can guess, was Marjorie Deal Armstrong. After Rothstein tipped off the police to the murder of James Roden, police entered Marjorie's home, which was a mess of dog, feces, clothes, and fast food cartons. The police even had to wear toxic hazard suits. Marjorie already had a reputation in Erie, killing before. She admitted to have shot her boyfriend Robert Thomas in 1984, but was acquitted because she stated that she was a victim of domestic abuse. Her first husband hung himself, and her second died after hitting his head at home on a coffee table. According to her former high school classmates, she was known for her intelligence, but over the years it mingled with madness. She suffered from multiple mental illnesses, including bipolar disorder, paranoia, and narcissism. Her moods would swing, and she seemed unable to stop her rapid-fire speech. The local DA, Brad Falk, who also attended... School with Marjorie described Marjorie as, quote, one of those folks that thinks she's smarter and slicker and brighter than everybody else, and that at the end of the day, she believes she will win or she'll prevail on anything that she does. It's the way she's been for over 40 years. She seemed like the type that would make a bank heist more complicated than it needed it to be, and she also seemed to be the type that would need to brag about her genius plan. The FBI made a profile of the color bomber based on behavioral analysis. The color bomber was profiled as a hoarder, comfortable with shop machines and power tools. This profile actually fit the combination of Rothstein and D.L. Armstrong. She had a complex, a violent past, and Rothstein had shop skills. And the final suspect is Brian Wells himself. When looking at the known details of the timeline, two things come off as suspicious on the part of Wells. First, that Wells' demeanor was so calm during the robbery. And second, that there was no evidence to back up Wells' story that he was attacked by a group of black men who locked him in the collar at gunpoint. Wells' calm throughout the situation troubled the police, who were never quite able to rule him out as a conspirator his own death. In 2007, DA Mary Beth Buchanan stated that she believes Brian Wells was in on the plot along with Rothstein and Deal Armstrong, who was the mastermind. The DA also believes that Armstrong and Barnes had planned on taking the money from Brian as soon as he had robbed the bank. 
but fled when they saw the cops and left Brian for dead. Because Wells allegedly never had a chance in his doomed scavenger hunt, Buchanan believes that Brian Wells was part of the operation. <clears throat> and given a collar bomb for an alibi. The collar would also ensure that Brian would stick to the plan, hand over the money, and if, if things went down downhill, he would not survive to be a witness against the other conspirators. According to an indictment completed in 2007, Wells thought the bomb was fake, so he agreed to wear it. He was told it was meant to fool the cops. If he was caught, he could blame the threatening instructions. Barnes claims Wells only realized when he delivered the pizzas to the TV tower that the bomb was real and he was locked into the device at gunpoint when he tried to run away. Despite the debate, Wells' family believes that he was a victim. As Buchanan completed her statement of the investigation, one of Wells' sisters continuously yelled, Liar! And now let's look at the official aftermath that unfolded. In February 2011, Marjorie Deal Armstrong was sentenced to life in prison plus 30 years for her role in the heist. She claims on her first day on the stand that she never knew Brian Wells and that had never heard of him until he was on the news. Armstrong claimed that she is not the killer and that they are still out there. She eventually died on April 4, 2017 of natural causes in a Texas prison. William... <coughs> Rothstein died of terminal cancer in the summer of 2004 before facing any charges. For what it's, uh, for what it's worth, <clears throat> retired FBI agent and criminal justice professor Jim Fisher believes that Rothstein was the true mastermind. Quote, the son of a bitch ended up winning. He died with all the secrets. He died taking all the answers with him. He gets the last laugh in that sense. He escaped punishment. He escaped detection. And finally... Brian Wells, whose supposed involvement is what classifies this case as a cold case for many, despite the official conclusion that Wells had been part of the plan. Many point out evidence against this idea, such as the fact that he let people at the bank leave during the robbery. And the note he left with the teller easily led the police to him, but some prosecutors say that was intentional. Wells' family and friends say he was 100% innocent, and there was no way he could have been involved. Others say Wells started out as a willing participant, but was double-crossed and became a victim. And that's all we have for this episode of the True Crime Never Sleeps podcast. Let us know your thoughts on this case. Do you think Brian Wells was in, um, involved? Let us know on Twitter at Cinema Gold Show. Er, sorry. Uh, Twitter on True Crime NS. Or find us on Facebook and let us know there. Just search True Crime Never Sleeps. Thanks for watching, and we'll see you next time. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You, too, could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. This country was built on a distinctly American work ethic. But today, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. 
and with that, we sent away good jobs and diminished our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make a variety of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more. All made right here in the USA, from growing the cotton and adding the final touches. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs for seamsters, cutters, and factory workers in towns and cities across the United States. And it's about more than an income. Jobs bring pride. Purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20.